Dominic, are you ready for me? Are you ready for me to bring the ruckus? Bring the ruckus. The MF ruckus. <laughs> if I knew you were, if I knew what you were talking about, I'd be much better place to take part in this conversation. Go on ahead. So this, I know you're a huge Wu Tang fan, so I know you'll be right into this. <laughs> I saw some, uh, I saw some brilliant. Well, this this kind of ticks so many, so many boxes for who I am personally. So. You know, um, I work in advertising. You do. Um, you know, I play all-time music. You do. And you know, I love the Wu Tang. You do. So, all Those th- all three of them came f- came together for me this week. Um, it, so anyone that has listened to this and Dom, you'll remember this conversation. So, episode ten, we spoke with Bush Gothic, and during that conversation. We're talking about problematic songs and problematic tunes, and I brought up a an old time one, which is a tune called "Turkey in the Straw," and it is it has it, it was a um, a minstrel song that has lots of race, racist um, uh, is it muddy racist past, and it is still widely used in the states as the ice cream song. So we had like well for me it was what was it in Ballycastle? I think in in Drogheda it was like. Um, the teddy bear's picnic. Din, 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 din. Very sinister. I think it, I think in Ballycastle it was the sash. <laughs> 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 or something, you know. Yeah. Um, so, well, maybe we should write to the RZA and ask him would he do something. <laughs> right, so here's the rest of the thing. Um, so that's the old time thing. And I mentioned how this this song is, is a deplorable song. And lots of people really object to it still being used as an ice cream song on the ice cream vans we're talking about right yeah yeah yeah. so like in many of state in many of the states when ice cream trucks roll around it's the song turkey in the straw and with black lives matter happening at the moment um a ice cream company called i think they're called good humor anyway those in conjunction with the rizza from the wu-tang clan did a released a a new jingle for ice cream trucks so the RZA composed this new ice cream jingle and made it um, released it royalty free so any ice cream van can just start playing it and it, it it's it's fantastic and he's obviously mastered the whole thing to be played on like shitty speakers as well the whole thing I think is just it, it wins on every level that I can think about like it, it, it's an advertising dream it's a great um it's a great story for the good humor ice cream company it's a great rewriting of of what can happen with with uh, i don't know reimagining what one of those tunes might be yeah to saying you know what we don't need to do it here we go here's a new one someone as iconic as the wu-tang clan even though they have a song called cream or ice cream anyway we won't get into that so yeah look hey what do you reckon we could write to the write to him and ask who who <laughs> Ask about doing the sash. Well, I sorry to refer to this in almost every episode, but in Kieran Carson's book, Last Night's Fun, he has a chapter called The Isle Orange Flute. And in that, he details the intertwined nature of tunes that have quote unquote orange past and tunes that would have more of a Irish Republican past or whatever like mm-hmm. tunes from both communities and how they're essentially and a lot of times they're they're intertwined and they're borrowings from one another and there are 
Um, and sometimes you'll fi find if you go to an Orange March or you happen to um, <laughs> to be on the periphery of an Orange March, sometimes you'll hear them playing the most peculiar tunes. There's there's a tune. Um, do you there's a tune. Um, which I is it the start of the, the soccer program on Saturday? No, actually, you know, it was the theme to Grandstand. a 1980s detective show called Van der Volk. And I think the original tune is actually by Bert Kampfert, the great German band leader and easy listening music genius, yeah. right? And you'll hear that at an Orange March up against the sash and all the kick the pope songs and um and you'll you'll hear other random things that come around that you that are just like really fascinating and peculiar and um i, f I find it quite funny anyway <laughs> so that's all i got to say on that it, it just this is all very rich territory which um i think uh, our today's guest shannon heaton would find really really interesting because that's the kind of thing she likes to explore i would i would say so um so shannon is based in boston in the usa and she's a flute player and a whistle player and she's a teacher and a composer and she also has a podcast called irish music stories into which she delves into these kinds of really interesting conundrums and uh, areas of irish music and irish music and contemporary culture so um, so that's today's guest, Shannon Heaton. Um, it's a ripper. Should we get into it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm saying this with a smile on my face because we've just actually, well, because it's great. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> <laughs> this is such this is such a, an enjoyable. It's just such an enjoyable chat, and and really, I have this word in my head at the minute. It's because we've just finished the interview, basically, and now we're recording the intro. I'm still feeling like we just had this really tender conversation, which is mm -hmm. lovely. So, okay, now we'll get into it. Let's bring the ruckus. <laughs> yes. All right, so here we go. I'll play something. I'll play two tunes for you. <laughs> Thank you. 
Good morning, Shannon Heaton. Welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Thank you. It's so nice <laughs> to be here. Um, it's an absolute delight to have a chance to talk to you. What were those tunes? Um, so I played the uh, Mountain Road and the Galway Rambler. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Mountain Road, I always learned in the key of D, but it goes down below the flute, what the flute can do. And so I like playing it in the key of G there. And then mm-hmm. the Galway Rambler is a real classic, of course. Usually I play it in the key of G, but I like playing it down in D. Um, yeah. What do you... This, this might you be a it? question that gets down in the weeds. Sorry, Dom. I was just... when It's only because I heard someone say pretty much exactly the same thing last night about a banjo tune. And So what do you do in a situation... Shannon, sorry, I should explain. I'm a numpty, and I, I, I really don't know a lot about <laughs> the, the mechanics or, or play. And I, I'm a very early stages beginner on the fiddle so but my question is what do you do as a player when you don't have a low a low note option if you if you, if you find yourself in the tune and you're playing and you don't have that option what what do you do yeah it's a good question i mean you can just play it up the octave um and you get to kind of um sell it so you got to use your imagination i think as the person playing it I sometimes just imagine that I'm playing the note down where it's supposed to be, even though I'm playing it up an octave. So I might just kind of... Do you kinda... do a, uh, like an over-exaggerated wink with it as well? <laughs> uh, sort of. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, kind of. You just, I think you just hear it as going down while you're going up, I think is one thing. And then maybe um, you might uh, rearrange the melody just slightly so that it makes a little bit more sense. So that... Um, uh, the mountain road it goes actually down goes down to that low B um, but I can't so I just just kind of reshape the melody slightly to accommodate do you remember where you picked up those tunes or are they lost in the mist of your memory they're really lost in the mist. They are. But I really associate the Galway Rambler with my friend um, Sean Gannon. I mean, it's a very common tune, but I just recall playing it with him on many occasions, like often for dancers. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when I play it, I think of him. Uh-huh. What, what was your first encounter with Irish music? <laughs> well, uh, my grandpa was a very mediocre tin whistle player. Um, the first person... Oh, like me. (laughs) (laughs) What, you're like my grandpa? (laughs) In that Uh, regard, yes. (laughs) Um, you know, the, the person who made the first big musical, um, impression on me playing the Irish tin whistle was actually a Belgian neighbor in Nigeria. My family lived in in Nsuka, Nigeria when I was seven and eight years old. And Huguette Brazine played the recorder and the tin whistle. And um, so I took a few lessons with her when we were living there. That was kind of how I got the bug. <laughs> is, is that really how you got the bug? That, that was like just a switch on? Um, kind of. I'd grown up um, listening to Irish music and folk music. My parents were hippies and they loved listening to all the folk revival stuff. Um, and also we had like Irish Mist albums and some Chieftains albums. Um, but I think it was really seeing you get play a few tunes, you know, in the kitchen. It kind of, oh, 
I, maybe there was some um, farther back memory of seeing the music played, you know, in the home that it just sort of mm-hmm. socially, I guess, is what I really liked about it. It wasn't like, you know, there's this musician and there's you. It's like you're all in the house together doing this. I, I remember that being um, pretty profound when I was little. What was Nigeria like for a seven, eight-year-old girl? Mm. Well, back then, I mean, oh, man, Nigeria was a great place to be a kid. I don't know what it's like now. I haven't uh, been in many years. Um, But, you know, it's a really musical place. It's a really affectionate place. The weather's good and hot. There's lots of fruit. You do a lot of running around outside with friends. Um, Our teachers were very... Well, actually, we had two teachers. One was Mr. Ojunkwo in the afternoon was very strict and very thin. And he would hit your hand with a straight edge if your penmanship was off. But um, Ms. Okonkor in the morning was very large. And she could fit like three of us on her lap and very affectionate. I just remember like a lot of... um, just kindness and we were very close with a few neighbors um, right in the area and um, yeah I just remember having a lot of fun I also had an appendicitis uh, there and it was on the night of a, a blackout so we had no power and um, they rushed me to like a local bush hospital because there happened to be a very fine surgeon there who could operate on me with local anesthetic <laughs> so Um, So we really counted on our neighbors during that time, too, you know, just to point us to the the right place. Whereabouts in Nigeria were you? We were in Nsuka. My mom had a Fulbright uh, scholarship to teach at the University of Nigeria in Nsuka. And my dad also taught there. And we got to know some really fine writers and musicians, um, the great... Chinua Achebe was a family friend, a great writer, um, mm-hmm. and his daughter was uh, Nwando was one of my best friends, and we used to go out and eat cashew fruits until we puked. Um, <laughs> I mean, we like we did this on more than one occasion. Like we ate too many cashew fruits, and we came in, and uh, I remember Chinua, her dad, um, was not stern with us at all, you know, but he said, "Girls, you cannot eat all of the cashew fruits." And like the very next week, we did it did it again. Well, you have to make sure it was the cashew fruits that did it. I mean, that's just <laughs> exactly. that's, that's just a scientific mind at work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to get blamed for eating the wrong thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what fields were your parents um, in uh, in academia? Journalism. So they were kind of brought in. Um, that was still after the you know still the after effects of the Biafran War um, had ripped apart the quote-unquote free press, the unfree press. And so they were part of the movement to help Nigerian reporters be able to do what they needed to do. Uh, was that in, what year, so roughly what years are we talking about? 1979? That's what I thought, yeah. Eight, yeah. yeah. And, and were you then, how long were you there for? We were there for a year, just a year. Yeah. And 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 did you come back to the States then or yeah. where did you go next? Mm-hmm. Right. We went um, from there, we went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh-huh. which is a very racially segregated town. I think it still is. And I went to school the, the first day that I went to school back in Milwaukee. 
I came back and my parents said, how did it go? And I said, eh, it was fine. But there was nobody there. And I said, okay, um, all right. Next day I went to class, came back and they said, well, how, how'd it go? And I said, yeah, same thing. I mean, people are nice enough, but really like there's nobody there. It's like empty. <laughs> My dad was like, oh, is she going to the right place? So the next day he walked me to school and he sat in the classroom with me. And then, you know, we walked home and he said, I see what you mean. It feels totally empty. It was like all these little white kids. There were like three black families in that particular school. And after a year of being the only white kid in the classroom in these you know, in a hot climate where you eat a lot of spicy food and fish and you sweat. I mean, there's like smells and color and closeness um, that I, I, you just don't feel. I didn't feel. Um, and I really hated that local school. And so we found a school like on the west side of Milwaukee, just another public school, but that had a much more diverse profile. And I was much more comfortable there. It was really really weird to go into that one school i remember yeah. that yeah i don't i don't really know much about milwaukee so how long did you spend in milwaukee then um we were there for i think three years then we um <laughs> we traveled all around the southwestern united states as my parents wrote a book on native american journalism and then we went to another um, Midwestern town, a very rural town called Carbondale, Illinois. It's in, um, it's in Southern Illinois. So even though it's in the Midwest, it was very Southern. And culturally and the way they talked, it was very, very different from anywhere we'd ever been. <laughs> and um, that was very interesting. And then um, my father died and uh, then we moved back to Milwaukee and I went to high school for three, four years in Milwaukee. Is that right? Um, Something like that. Wh where were your uh, parents ori originally from and where uh, were you born? My dad was from the West Coast. My dad was from Spokane, Washington. All right. And my mother uh, was from St. Louis, Missouri. Right. And um, um, my father was in the Jesuits um, studying to become a priest. He was nearly there, and my mother was a nun. My mother was born into a, she was a Catholic nun. She was born to a very poor family, and they sent four of their daughters off to the convent from uh, the age of 13 as a way to give them some opportunity and um, feed them. Um, and my mom was in the convent from age 13 to 28. How did she? How did she meet your dad then? So my mom got her college degree while she was in uh, the convent. They paid for her going to journalism school, and um, she was on a panel in uh, Rochester, New York, study um, uh, to adjudicate young kids' newspapers, something like that. My dad was also in the Jesuits, but also in the field of journalism. And he was also there as an adjudicator. <laughs> so that's how they met. Wow. <laughs> so do you know much about what happened when they... Um, I, I just <laughs> I just had a line from Heart... Do you remember Heart to Heart from way, way back? When no. they met, it was Moira. Um, I just had that flash through my head. <laughs> <laughs> what happened when when they met? I mean, do you know much about how they sort of figured out uh, there's something here 
<laughs> well, and it's not the Jesuits. Yeah, you know, um, apparently, uh, my father, I think, had written a letter to my mother, uh, ostensibly about the kids that they were adjudicating. I think my mother had some criticism of his adjudication or of his um, kids' uh, journalism entries. And they so they had like a writing correspondence, and she was quite critical of his work. <laughs> I think that's how it started. <laughs> always, always a good way to start. Right? Yeah, yeah. If you can weather that, you're good. <laughs> um, it's testing the waters. I, I just kind of wondered about because I, you know I once interviewed a, a a a nun when I was living in Seattle, and she was Irish actually, and she talked about. This moment where she was uh, she was in London in a convent in London before she moved to America and um, she had met a young man in Ireland before she left and he was phoning her and calling her and she was at this moment of this just on the cusp of deciding right whether she was going to leave the convent and go back to Ireland and and marry this young man and I just wondered about that moment for your mom and dad where they both you know there's there's the falling in there's the falling in love is one thing and then there's the sort of extracting yourself from this lifelong um calling that you've had in your in your life up to that point you know what I mean yeah indeed I kind of can't imagine but also you know the circumstances um uh, might be different for some, you know, really going into uh, the church as a calling. I think for my mom, it was not her choice. Um, and it was maybe a bit of a plea of, it was a bit of a desperation move on the part of her parents. Yeah. Um, for my father, I think it was a calling. So I, I think that he wrote about that in some essays after you know, about the sort of the guilt of leaving the church. Um, but also they were, they, you know, it was the late 60s or when they were leaving the church. And so there was a lot of uh, awakening going on culturally, societally, that probably supported their decisions. Mm-hmm. What, year, what year was that? Well, they probably would have met in the late 60s. So when... When you're traveling around with them um, from place to place, uh, were there other countries overseas that you visited during that time? Yeah, we were in Ireland a few times. We were in um, Germany. Um, uh, We spent a lot of time on the West Coast, which felt, again, uh, like another country uh, from the Midwestern United States. And then um, when I was 16, I went to college in Thailand. Um, And um, by then, my dad had died. And my mom came to stay in Thailand. Thailand, My sister and my mom came to stay in Thailand for a few weeks with me while I was there for the year. Yeah. Do you mind me asking how your father died? He died of lung cancer, and he was not a smoker. He never smoked in his life. He worked in newsrooms, though, um, and they right. they um, made it illegal to smoke in the newsrooms in the mid-'80s when they discovered that cigarette smoke was harmful to computers. 
Jeez. <laughs> yeah. <I> was, <laughs> it's there's amazing. Nothing, there's nothing to say to that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How old were you when he died? I was 13. Yeah. Do you, do you remember much about it? I mean, do I remember much about my father dying? Yeah, but but that that period. I mean, was he sick for a long time? Or um, he was sick for a while and tried a bunch of crazy experimental treatments, including Laetrile uh, treatment in um, Tijuana, Mexico, and um, injecting mustard gas. And all of this was highly effective, and his cancer went into remission, and then um, very swiftly, very swiftly, it came back, and like two weeks later, he died. Um, and I do remember his death as well. I was with him, my sister and my mom, and I were all there. And he told us, he said, guys, this is, he was in the ICU unit. He had been there just for a day in the hospital. And he said, guys, this is it. You're going to have to call Father Jim. <laughs> and so we called Father Jim, who was cutting the grass at the moment, and he came in cutoffs. And so the room smelled like grass, you know, like freshly mown yeah, grass. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, uh, uh, boy, I've never talked about this, certainly in a podcast interview, and I've never um, considered that this would be an Irish music story. But um, definitely uh, has colored my life in that it was a a very good death it was like he talked us through the whole thing and he told us the last thing um will be my sense of hearing so you can keep talking to me you can keep singing to me um and so we did and um yeah i've i've always known that and i've always um thought of that through my days is how important our sense of hearing is how important our sense of communicating with each other is at all times you know that um you can still be communicating and having this experience and living through dying as well you know that death is part of life um i'm grateful for the good death um experience that I was around with my dad. Thanks for sharing that. It's such a powerful story. Thanks. It is um, it, that insight into the idea of a good death is something that I like for you to have that so young is pretty profound, you know? Yeah. You know, I uh, definitely it's a lot easier to talk about it many, many years later. Um. But I think that I had a sense of that even at the time. I mean, it sucked. <laughs> but also, um, I think I I got it. Like in that room, I think I got, wow, this is really important. Yeah. Could we, should we have another tune? Totally. Um, what will we play? How about, um, uh... Yeah, so um, my dad was a big teacher of mine, and also my Aunt Jane. She was totally weird. We called her Weird Old Aunt Jane, <laughs> and it turns out she wasn't even my real aunt. Like, she wasn't a, an actual relation, which I kind of, I, I guess I knew, but I never really uh, felt that way. She was always just Aunt Jane, Weird Old Aunt Jane. Where did she live? She lived in <laughs> Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
And um, she had lived all over the world, and she was a reporter as well. And um, she had had all these adventures. And she was really kind of frailing out there at the end. And it, we were going to move her into this apartment that had the option of having some on-site care if she needed it. And she'd always been really excited about everywhere that she was moving. You know, no, no matter the, the situation, no matter how small it was, she lived in this tiny, tiny apartment at one point, and she would host these dinner parties, you know, and she made a book about it called, like, um, uh, what was it? It was, like, uh, a bottle and three daffodils or something like that, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> just light some candles, open a bottle of wine, have some daffodils, you're grand. Like, you can have 50 people over, um, <laughs> even if you live in a shoebox. Um, so... I said, so Aunt Jane, are you getting excited about this next adventure? And she said, oh, honey, I'm done with adventures. And I thought, oh, no, don't, don't do that. Um, so I wrote her this tune because she was going to be moving to the south shore of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I wrote her this tune called The Bell of the South Shore. <clears throat> Ah, and also it goes down below the range of the flute. And so let's see if you notice or if my imagination <laughs> can power this narrative. I'll listen for the wink. <laughs> Good. Thank you for that. Thank you. So yeah. if, if we were to just go back, uh, you, you, when you were in Nigeria and you, you kind of got taken with the whistle with your next door neighbor, what, what, um, what way did music then start to develop for you? What, what was the next process for you? Yeah, well, um, when we got back to the States, I got a flute, like a metal flute from my aunt Marianne. And um, in the school band, I started to learn to play that. 
um, instrument and uh, my parents back in the States, they were teaching for the the um, University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee and they would have these grad students come through and oftentimes they would stay with us and so we had a number of really um, very kind friends um, through the graduate program. Their students, um, Aidan Collins, Chris Day, John Tunney, um, these great Irish guys who were also very musical and John's father Patty uh, was a great singer and so John shared all these cassette tapes of his dad singing and um, they would take us to pubs where there were Irish music sessions going on. Um, uh, There's a big Irish music festival that happens every year in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and so they um, they uh, took us around to meet their friends at the festival. Um, they arranged to have the Belfast Harp Orchestra come, and they had a bunch of great friends in that group. We got to know some of the McPeaks through them. And um, then there was one night, I remember this now, I was 10 years old, and um, the Chieftains were playing at this theater in Milwaukee. And so, of course, Chris and Aiden and John had gotten us tickets, and they took us backstage Um, And I I saw Matt Malloy playing the flute. And um, Matt sat down with me and, you know, I said that I was learning to play the flute and I played some of the tin whistle and we played a tune together. I just picked up a tin whistle that somebody had there. And he was really encouraging and I just remember being mesmerized by all the flutey bits. Um, And we'd been listening to... um, you know, like Bothy Band recordings and Planksy recordings and things like this. So, I mean, I, I had the sound of the pipes, the sound of the flute in my head, but it was it was that performance, again, it was kind of like my aha moment um, with the whistle with Uget Brazin in Nigeria. This was, um, actually, I, I was 11. I was 11 years old, and um, I was really taken with it. And then just having the reinforcement of Aiden and Chris and John around and meeting their friends, I think that's really what sealed the deal for me. It made it, um, I think it put it more into a cultural context because, of course, my Belgian neighbor in in Suka, Nigeria, you know, I liked the social aspect of the music and I liked hearing her play, but there was no Irish cultural element surrounding that. But this was really, you know, it was wrapped around having a good time with Chris and Aiden and John. Um, And they treated me like a grown-up, you know. Um, I, I loved all of that. So I think it was the the music in company and also that um, night of getting to meet Matt and hear him and hear him in the context of this band, which, you know, that, yeah, that was it. It's such an important part of the music. The fact that you you get access to like the Hendrixes of, of the music world of this particular type of music, like for, for you to be 11 to, a be backstage and then b to actually have a, a tune or two with the likes of matt malloy like it it's just a it, it testament to to the music right totally and that, that that's not at all a unique story you know mm-hmm. like you said we're we have access to all these fine players because you know the ceiling is very um is very low is that it <laughs> that's the wrong way of saying it accommodating um, yeah. <laughs> The it's barriers saying, are very low. The barriers are very low. <laughs> <laughs> so, is so from that moment then is that when you kind of your your attention is being focused a little bit a lot more on the Irish music and less the the band like the 
so was it was it marching band when you said it was a band before i didn't quite get what kind of band it was but oh yeah i mean just like you know sure the the um music in the school you know through the band whatever yes i would say so i would say so <laughs> i'm and then, still you... giggling about the ceiling i'm thinking of it as the moss ceiling now <laughs> I was just thinking of kind of movable walls or like (laughs) (laughs) partitioned rooms and all that. Those stone walls. Housing metaphors going out of control. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that the, you know, the the school band was not necessarily a huge uh, passion ever. It was just um, what was on at the local school as a way to engage with music. Um, That said, I had wonderful teachers. And I really enjoyed playing um, that instrument. And uh, I continued to play the silver flute and learn classical music, you know, that kind of stuff, alongside playing um, the tin whistle. And then um, I got a really crappy German flute, you know, one of these really hard to play. (laughs) Um, It was this heavy flute there was a big crack in the head joint so I had to fill it up with beeswax every time that I would go to play but I just loved it and um yeah so just doing the both alongside each other for a while I think the one informed the other but definitely my heart was in the tunes and at school was that learning from the page learning from oh yeah reading from so yeah, yeah yeah that's how they did it um mm-hmm and also and, then in high school, I got into playing for the school musicals. That was a lot of fun. Right. And that I would be playing the flute and the saxophone and the piccolo. And sometimes there'd be like a tin whistle part or whatever. That was really a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. What, what would the musicals be? Um, like which ones? Yeah. Uh, we did A Chorus Line. We did Man of La Mancha. We did The King and I. We did Pirates of Penzance. I loved right, pretty, that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, but pretty sophisticated. Oh, yeah. You yeah, know? you really had to practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and was, was your mom then, um, your mom was still teaching at the university? Yeah, at that point she was um, the dean of uh, the journalism department at Marquette University. Right. And it was her big move to merge the... Um, School of Journalism and uh, speech, TV, film. She wanted to merge it all into one as a mass communications unit, and she received so much pushback. <laughs> Look at us now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. Yeah, um, wh- when you're um, you have um, was it uh, John Tunney that was living with you? Uh huh. He um, yeah. I think um, I I can't remember who lived where and when um, but it was kind of the three of them it was our friends Aidan Collins and Chris Day and John Tunney yeah. that were in the program were, at the same time so were they studying journalism as well that's like right were in the, right okay got it got it um, you know when, when you'd mentioned um, when you mentioned John I, I was I remember seeing Paddy Tunney once in Ballycastle at an Ulster Fla uh, Darren I don't know if I've told you this story but I mean it's not it, it just uh, myself and my friend in uh, Ballycastle, um, Alex Campbell, my one friend, <laughs> um, went ended up at, at uh, in this pub at like you know midnight or something, and Len Graham was there, and Paddy Tunney was there as well, and I remember watching and listening to them singing uh, in this smoky bar 
nobody else in it. It was the Glenchesk Bar, if anybody's listening who knows Ballycastle, at the bottom of Castle Street. And there were very few people in there apart from the singers. And I remember coming out at like half past one and feeling like that music really didn't have anything to offer me, right, as a young guy, you know. And now at the age of 52, I just think what I wouldn't give for 10 minutes back in that pub, you know what I mean? Um, it was just, it just, it seemed to the young me, it just seemed like these these very long ballads that I couldn't quite, I didn't know what to do with them, you know what I mean? Yeah, so Dom, Dom just for me, like I actually, I, I don't have any reference point for the type of music. Uh, right, so unaccompanied singing, essentially, would that be? Yeah. Um, and you know, narrative narrative songs, you know, um, whole yeah. style. Um, whole style. I, I tend to think of them as as quite ulstery ballads, but I don't really know what I mean by that. Shannon, do you want to jump in here and help me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, Patty Tunney would have sung Ulster ballads, Len Graham. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's a real great unaccompanied singing tradition in Irish in Connemara as well. So depending on your region, you know, that's where the songs would be coming from. But yeah, just yeah. like you're saying, these many times very long um, and sometimes in Irish um, songs with no accompaniment and no arrangement other than just the emotion of the melody um can be something of sameness for those of us who you know aren't used to that experience or who aren't used who don't know the language if they're in Irish and i think um you know if you're brought up around those songs maybe you have this way of just kind of entering into that zone and like listening to that in a way that those of us coming from the outside <laughs> really don't have that um that practice I remember my right. mom, when she went to visit Patty, um, apparently, like, sat there and sang for, like, four hours. And she was like, honey, I couldn't even keep my eyes open. <laughs> I'd be like, mom, why did you get to be the one? <laughs> but, I mean, even for those of us who love unaccompanied singing, I think, um, again, if you're not, like, born and from the beginning, just, like, around these the sound and the vibe and the feeling of these songs uh it's 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 something otherworldly well you definitely have to as well you have to still yourself right yeah it's an intense listening experience you as a listener have to bring a different game to it you know sometimes uh as one singer is um singing another or maybe two will oftentimes like put a hand on the singer just a yeah. hand on the singer. Mm. And, you know, I think in some ways, well, there is this belief like that you want to make sure that the other person doesn't float away into the land of the mystical. But I think also it's like a support. And maybe it's also like you feel the person's vibrations. It becomes more than just this person is singing this song as a musical event. But it's like it's like a meditation in a way. There's also a tradition of winding, you know, where you'll have um, the singer and somebody's holding the singer's hand and while the singer yeah. is singing you, you literally like wind their hand just a little bit i don't know it's like to physically uh, stay uh, connected because these songs can be very transporting and 
I could imagine kind of going a bit nuts if you just sit there and sing these beautiful songs. I mean, they could take you to really dark and really beautiful places from which it would be hard to just then jump right back in. Yeah, I, I, I've always find the, the winding part of it, I find it an incredibly tender mm. thing to to witness, you know? Yeah. Even just talking about it is making me feel incredibly homesick, and I've and I've only experienced really singing sessions less than a handful of times. But I don't know, there's something that just kind of has got to me at the minute. Mm. Uh, I I do love the idea of of keeping hold of someone so they don't float off through the roof. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, Shannon, is that a type of singing that you you do? Um. I well, I know you I'm, sing. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm no Patty Tunney, um, but I've I've learned some of his songs. Uh, I could try one for you. Yes, please, Shannon. What? Before you before you do that, can I ask you just quickly? I, I don't want, sorry for interrupting. It's a bit hard since we're <laughs> since we're just audio and we're kind of um, can't see each other. But yeah, um, uh, I've mentioned in this podcast a couple of times that um, there's a version of uh, Patty Tunney singing the Lowlands of Holland mm. in Irish. Um, and it's on some um, compilation um, of of stuff, and it is one of the most. I I I I will listen to that on my own any morning of the week, um, uh, when when there's nobody around. If I have a minute when there's nobody around, and it every time it just it roots me to the spot. It's so beautiful. It's it's incredible, and I I don't even know. How to describe it, except that, um, yeah, that's it. That, it's just, and and that really got me rethinking when I stumbled across it. It got me rethinking that night in the Glenshesk Bar mm. in Bally Castle, and <laughs> my, yeah. just my own my own kind of young idiocy to to be in the presence of these uh, incredible. Um, uh, stores of music and culture and to not be able to understand the, the value of what I was seeing you know um, I think Dom so. like when I said before like you, you as a listener you have to bring a different intensity yourself as a listener I think like young people are a lot of times like if you're out with Alec and it's, it's, and it's late at night like your attention span is you've got other things in your mind as a young young person out on the town more than likely than sitting and listening intently to to long format unaccompanied singing, <laughs> I can only imagine how hard it would be these days. Like, oh, my attention span is gone. If a, if there's a phone near me, I have to physically Oops. remove myself from it. I can't imagine kids. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's happening, but I just couldn't imagine when I when I give into my adolescent mind now, thinking, could I sit through it, even with the passion I have now and I don't. I don't think I would if I was that age, particularly yeah. if I had a, a phone. <laughs> and Instagram. Yeah. Are you? Are you? Are you? Um, Which is horrible to say. Like that's when you think about what I've just said. It's it's, it's such a depressing thought. But what do you make of that, Shannon? Because you've, Shannon, you've explored quite a few aspects of how tradition intersects with um, technology and the the kind of contemporary sensibility, right? Yeah, I. 
Uh, or maybe we keep that for part three. <laughs> Let's do the song first. <laughs> We're in such a strange place right now. I mean, I think this is uh, how we interact with technology and how we use it um, for the deepening of the traditional music experience, let's say, you know, for the deepening of any experience, but let's say through an Irish music lens, how we can use technology to access archival recordings or to share current um, musical ideas or to archive tunes or search tunes. It's amazing, right? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And also how this, um, because everything is available and because our phones are right there, you know, how we're just like, you know, so out of it and so distracted all the time. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would have uh, buckled down and been as taken with all this stuff and valued it as much if I learned it now. I don't know. I mean, in a way, I kind of feel like the opposite of what you're saying. In a way, I feel like, It'd be harder to get into it now unless I really got into it. It's harder to get into a meditative hand-winding state now with all the phones around. Mm. It's funny. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we will get into it when we've finished maybe this song, but podcasts certainly are strangely a medium where it lets it lets you to it lets you, it allows you a moment to kind of shut off and just indulge in 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 listening. It may not be listening to the music, but at least you're listening to the subject matter broadly because mm. mm-hmm. it, it's one of those things that you need to do like I can't, I can't i can't multitask i can't read and listen to a podcast i can't do i have to do a menial task and and, and listen to it and it sounds absorb. like nigel sounds like nigel's got the right idea lie on the couch close your eyes <laughs> podcast style yeah all <laughs> <laughs> right yeah okay yeah. so shannon Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you hanging there now. So. <clears throat> right. Um, okay. Uh, right. I was going to sing a song. What was I going to sing? We, we were talking Patty Tunney. Um, right. So maybe um, he, sang, he sang a great song called Where the Moorcocks Crow. Um, and I'm, I'm uh, the Lowlands of Holland that he sung in in Irish. Yes, really? has, there's 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 a couple of versions. There's one in Irish ah. and there's one in mm. uh, and there's one in English. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's see. What key will I do this in today? We'll find out. You will find out. Okay. Here we go. With my dog and gun through the blooming heather to seek for pastimes i took my way where i spied a lovely fair maid her charms invited me a while to stay I said, my darling, you will find I love you. Tell me your dwelling and your name also. Excuse my name and you'll find my dwelling near the mountain streams where the moorcocks crow. 
I said, my dear, if you're wet or over, my former aching I will leave aside. Here is my hand and I'll pledge my honor. If you'll prove constant, I'll make you my bride. If my parents knew that I Great affliction I would undergo. I'll stop at home for another season near the mountain streams where the moorcocks crow. So farewell, dear, for another season. I hope we'll meet in yon moorland vale, and when we meet we'll embrace each other. I'll pay attention to your lovesick tale, and it's hand in hand we will join together. And I'll escort you to yon valley's Where the linnet sings her sweet notes so pleasing Near the mountain streams where the moorcocks crow It's a lovely one, that one. That was, that was fantastic, yeah. thank you. <coughs> it's a little morningy. Um, mm, thank you. Yeah. I was thinking that's maybe how it was when my parents met, mm. huh? <laughs> <laughs> Never had that image in my head with that song before, but now I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you progress in, uh, you know, from high school to college? Did you go, did you study music when you went to college or? Yeah. So um, I went to, for my first year of college, I was in Thailand and because when I first arrived, I did not speak the language, um, but I lived in a village where nobody spoke English, which is a really handy way to learn. Um, I, I had took a bunch of courses that um, didn't require as much of the written language, like I took Thai cooking and banana leaf folding and doll making and music. <laughs> Um, so uh, through the music studies very quickly I learned wow this music um, is learned by ear um, it's played for ceremonies you know um, like it's part of social life of, um, of ritualistic life um, it's like Irish music it's the singing is very melismatic um, what, you know, what do you that, mean by that? like um, one a uh, word might have many pitches. Near the mountain, mountain. That's mm. melismatic. So, like, is that the is that is that what gets called the nya? Uh, no, no. The nya is kind of like the tone, the feel, the vibe, man. <laughs> That's my definition. Um, no, but just uh, technically, it's just moving around on one word, melodically. So it's a Mariah Carey kind of thing. She's it's a Mariah Carey. Yeah. Mariah Carey does it way better. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, what's what's the um, what's the name of that music? Is there like a, a I mean, it's got on three Taylor. It's just Thai music. But um, yeah. It's like not foreign to us, you know, melodically um, mm-hmm. coming from Irish music. Um, it's learned by ear. Uh, people learn it together, teach it to each other, get together in houses for sessions and jam, you know. Um, this was very attractive to me and my uh music teachers were highly supportive had me over to the house almost immediately you know I, I learned like three tunes on Sa'u it's a string instrument and they had me over to sit in the in with the band you know just playing the basic mm-hmm. parts um, but I, I really loved this I loved that it was social music um, and I loved that it was cultural music and there was a dance element to it um there's a type of thai don't three thai of thai music that is um for uh formal dancing and then there's the more music from the northeast of thailand the isan music that um is very rhythmically like polkas um it sounds very familiar to us um coming from Irish music so this totally lit my fire and so when I got back to the states I was like dude I totally want to study more Thai music maybe I'll be the person who saves the sasam sai which is the three-stringed um Thai instrument that was going (laughs) sort of extinct because all the makers are old and of course it's absurd to have this you know white kid out to save the sasam sai but you know I was young and idealistic and the daughter of idealists and um, so I went to school at um, Northwestern University in Evanston Illinois and you know I was looking for like where can I keep studying Thai music and there was a temple on the south side of Chicago so I would take like four buses it took like three hours to get down to Watamalam um, on the south side of Chicago and I would go there like once a month um, and it was great to get together with all the Thai heads and to learn more Thai music but it was like so it was such a journey and so I was mm-hmm. looking in the phone book you know for there's got to be like an international place you know where I can keep doing this on the north side of the city and when I was in the phone book I was looking for international and I saw Irish American Heritage Center and I thought this was so funny Irish American Heritage Center and so I called them up and I said what do you do and I said, oh, sorts of things, you know, but we have like music lessons. And I said, oh, that's cool. Um, like Irish music lessons, I guess. Oh, sure. And there's like this um, instructor, they said, who lives right beside you. You should call him up. And so I did. He lived two blocks away. My friend John, my who became my friend John Williams, um, plays the concertina and the um, accordion uh-huh. um, and the tin whistle. But also he was starting to learn the flute at the time. And I said, well, I know how to play the flute. I know how to blow in it. And I know a couple tunes, but I don't know a lot of Irish tunes. And I'd love to learn more. And so we'd get together and he'd show me a bunch of tunes and work on my Irish style. And I'd show him maybe how to, you know, blow into the flute a little bit better or whatever. And um, so I, uh, John started then taking me around to the local sessions. And I met all the local flute players, Siobhan and Brendan McKinney and John Craven and uh, then we'd go down to the south side sometimes on mass the north siders would go down and take a field trip down to the south side and go hear Kevin Henry play the flute and 
Um, I would go to sessions at the Irish American Heritage Center, the cultist sessions, mm-hmm. and um, all the old accordion players were so, so, Jack Murray and Pat McPortland were so supportive and taught me tunes. And um, it was really, um, the, uh, it just sort of happened um, that I got into it as sort of a line of work, I guess, because it was, you know, it was come on down to the session and then it was... Um, we're playing for a dance and you can be the fifth member and at the end right. of the night I got some money for it and then it was come on down to the session and you can be the second leader um, it was very gradual um, uh-huh. and then um, John said okay it's time for you to start going around to Ireland and you know so I took my backpack and my tape recorder and I'd spend three months of every winter um, I would stay in Clare Castle and I would walk into the sessions in Ennis and just every night I would um just do my best and listen a lot and tape record sometimes but even sometimes I felt sheepish bringing out the tape recorder so I'd I'd like run into the loo and I'd write on the toilet paper the first couple (laughs) notes of tunes that I remembered (laughs) and then I'd go home and I'd practice them and then I'd come back the next day and I'd try some of the newer tunes and yeah I had a lot of really um, I I had a lot of support from folks there that that reminds me of the story I heard in one of your episodes about um, oh, I, can't, I can't remember for the life of me it was um, folks who were learning tunes a couple of guys who were learning tunes and one would learn the first half and the other would learn the second half and they'd cycle home yes, from so the session and then get together get together the next morning and reconstruct the tune I love that that was a story that um, Rose Flanagan That's told amazing. about her, her father um, he would have right, been like you know it, yeah. 105 by now I think um but yeah, he was, and they would, as they were riding their bikes home, they'd each memorize, I learned the A part, I learned the B part. <laughs> so great. So, so do you still, um, at this point then, do you, are you realizing that, um, I mean, clearly if you're going to Ireland, you're realizing that you, you have a lot to, to still to learn, but are you realizing that you've got a knack for this? I don't know that there's ever that conscious moment of like, okay, I think I'm getting this. I think I'm getting pretty good. <laughs> I don't think that that ever happens. Um, Whittly hear this. Whittly get a load of me. I think it just became more and more something that I was doing and something that I wanted to do well and something that I was getting paid to do, uh, which is kind of humbling because, of course, you know, there are so many people who do it better and who have done it for longer. And, of course, it's so this uh this amazing repertoire of tunes and this um culture this tradition you know i'm just an outsider and so um it does always uh yeah you want to do it right you know you want to do it justice you want to do your best at least um so i think it just becomes gradually 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 you're doing it more you're you're you never stop learning you never stop making mistakes (laughs) yeah Are you there? Yes, we're here. <laughs> Sorry. Darren, are you there? He's just tweeting. That's all right. He's tweeting. He's live tweeting uh, <laughs> as we go. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had my kids come in and I put you on mute for a second so that when, when they left, I was still on mute. That's quite that's quite all right. I was just, I just texted Matt to say, no uke in the kitchen, please. Because <laughs> yeah. Matt was playing the ukulele. <laughs> Is he going to come in and join us for a, a tune? Um, I don't know. Um, I'll... <laughs> I'll find out. It's up to you. Uh, Only if it's easy. Uh, we're very happy to have you playing on your own because I, 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 we do love having 
um, just the pure sound of an instrument is really it's great yeah and, um, and it's a very different I know it's a very different experience for people playing completely on their Indeed. own given that it's such a social music you know um, how about uh, yeah. so speaking of going to Claire all the time <clears throat> for a while hey Maddie I'm gonna play a tune by myself and then do you want to play a tune with me in a little bit um, yeah this is Matt Heaton ladies Hello. and gentlemen hi it's Matt Heaton or do you want to play a tune with me right now yeah. Okay. All right. If that's all right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hello, Matt. How are you? So they can't hear, he can't hear you because I have on headphones. So, um, yeah. yeah but, so I will just play along with Shannon. But Dom and Darren say hi. Hello. What do you want to play, bud? Um, you want to do PJs? Sure. Do, okay. Great. That sounds great. We'll do some reels for you. We'll play a tune that we call PJ Hayes number two. And a tune called um something that we'll think of in a sec. Yeah. It's a nice common name. Cottage in the Grove. Cottage in the Grove. And then the mother and child reel before our child wakes up. Is he still out? No, he's awake. Okay. Are we in tune? Thank you. 
Lovely. What, what did you say the name of that one was? So the first tune, it was three tunes. The first one is called P. Joe Hayes Number 2, or it's also known as Johnny McGreevy's. Um, the second tune is called The Cottage in the Grove, and the third tune is called The Mother and Child Reel. Those were great, Shannon. Um, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Manny. Thank you. <sighs> He's going to get breakfast for our son. So, so how do you then construct uh, a living, right, from music? There's a question for you. <laughs> well, that's a lovely way to ask it. In a way, it's like um, a pathway into the answer. That's just it. You construct it. Um, I like to do lots of different things, and I'm interested in lots of different things. I like thinking about music. I like sharing it, and um, I like working with it. So I think um, that combination of interests for me has led me to become really interested in um, arranging Irish music in a way that maybe is accessible for people who don't just know about Irish music. Mm -hmm. um, I really like to do that, both with my trad duo here, where we're playing Irish music, but we're trying to, you know, uh, give it some um, variety in its presentation for the uninitiated. But also I've composed a lot of music um, for strings and flute and voice and um, then making a podcast um, where I'm thinking about how to present not just these tunes but the reasons for them, the isms behind them, the, um, the bigger stories behind them. Um, I've really enjoyed doing that and I've met so many people along the way who love this music um, who play in all sorts of settings you know they've been playing for a year they've been playing for their whole lives they do it for a living um, they only play uh, at home with nobody listening and I love all of it and um, I love when I'm able to uh, maybe take a tune or take a concept and share my idea of how I learned it maybe or how I think of it or how I break it down and if that can be helpful um, for other people who are learning or thinking about this music or just another point of view I really like that so um, I think it's been really fun for me to construct I guess my livelihood around being a bit of a tour guide into this music as somebody coming from the outside I really understand what it's like um, to discover this tradition, this culture, um, and to appreciate it and view it in a way that maybe somebody just growing up with it, um, uh, maybe some things uh, I will never understand in, in their way, and maybe there are some things that they would never even notice, um, because, um, yeah, because when you're just born into it. Do you ever have, probably not now, but did you ever have moments where you felt uncertain about asserting yourself in that cultural space um let's see when was the last one maybe uh 20 seconds ago when i was talking <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's pretty weird you know it's pretty weird to um do anything um to assert yourself as anything you know i think of that often um and i mean the current um whatever uh is going on in american government right now is a bit of an anomaly a bit of a blip on the radar but i mean just in general um 
like even looking back to um, some really effective and um, strong leaders, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're just kind of making it up too. They're drawing on past experiences and like you're never, um, you've never been president before. Um, and even with a team and even with the best advisors, you know, there's a certain degree of like, you know, when it's your turn to lead and to do your thing, you just got to rise to the occasion and do your best with hopefully some uh, good advising and always learning more, hopefully some humility. Um, and in so doing, um, it seems uh, like only good things can come of that. Uh, so the purpose is not to say this is what Shannon Heaton knows, but it's Shannon Heaton sharing uh, what she understands for now. Um <laughs> That can only lead to some conversation or some insights if then Shannon Heaton can shut up and listen. It's one of the things I enjoy most about your podcast is that how you, well, you recontextualize the music. And I think you, like, you kind of summed it up just before when you said about if you're kind of on the outside of the, the culture, approaching it in lots of different ways. And like for someone like me, who I would say I'm very new to the, the culture, really, it, it's a it's such a great way of of reframing it and it, it allows you to well allows me then feel more familiar with with the with the music and with the culture yeah what what mm-hmm. was your what was your process when when you set out to do this how many years is it now four years three years four years yeah we should say this is the irish music stories podcast right yes yeah so when you set out to do this how, how long were you thinking about it and like is it is it is it in the form that you set out to create it as mm, that's a good question um well i was thinking of going to grad school at harvard for ethnomusicology i was thinking of getting a doctorate in ethnomusicology at harvard um i don't know why because i love uh studying cultural music and um I love thinking about it and I love being with other thinkers um, who think about the why and the how of the music. And, um, you know, in ethnomusicology, we don't make universals. We really focus on the um, distinctions of each cultural tradition. (laughs) And I guess it just kind of dawned on me. I guess I'm not really an ethnomusicologist. I guess I really love the universals. I guess I really love... I mean, the distinctions are so important. Every little detail of what makes something unique is worthy of intense uh, study. Uh And then there's some real beauty in um, bringing all those stories together and letting them be unacademic, letting them be, um, yeah, letting them uh, all sit together and... uh, wrap them up in a nice neat bow sometimes that's really comforting to do um and then it can spin off into then further investigation of distinctions which is also very exciting but yeah i guess it was just realizing you know what i really want to do is share some of these beautiful stories and make up um make a way to share them with people that is accessible, you know, that has some production elements, that has, like, good typed writing. Um, I have free-form interviews with people, but then I take all those interviews and I see what emerged 
and I really go deep and I make a story around them and I just um, I stitch it all together um, in the way that people are talking I add music to it I bring in some of their music um, and I keep coming back to the central story of each episode and um, that has been highly satisfying and a lot of work to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a I, I i know from experience that's an incredibly putting together one episode of that kind of built feature is uh so much more complex than probably most people actually realize in terms of every element yeah. that you've just outlined um yeah um oh, but you. you do it beautifully i mean and there's a I was, gonna, I was just going to ask, just speaking on on production because it is so well put together. Like the editing is beautiful. The the, um, the production from a fidelity point of view is always great. Do you have it? Like where where does that fit in? Is that something that you had picked up on the on the fly? How how did that aspect of your craft come about? Well, I guess from recording albums for a number of years. You know, I had some recording and editing skills. So you were quite kind of hands-on in, in that regard? Um, I wasn't as hands-on with all the editing um, and the recording as I am now. I've definitely uh, become more adept. Um, but I've always been uh, the most active member of the Matt and Shannon Heaton duo in terms of um, sound mixing and arranging and recording. Um, so... But I mean, back to your initial idea of how do you craft a living um, playing music? I mean, I think having skills uh, as a player f and loving this music for starters, I mean, I think that's where it begins. A and then, but but I think also having some, um, you know, having some stagecraft, being able to talk to an audience, having recording skills, perhaps, having editing skills, having composing skills, I mean, and these are things that you can develop along the way, right? I think that's um, how you craft a long um, life in music, not just because then you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, but I think then you're always having to keep growing and learning and adapting so you stay engaged and you stay interested. So your your appetite for, um, I think you said being a universalist, it... it fits you well right for this occupation i i think so i think so i mean i think there are different approaches right i guess um for me i i do think um you know being a generalist and being a you know i also play accordion i also like to sing and compose and arrange and um that really suits me i guess and also it's something that i've grown into i didn't do all these things in the beginning but there are people who do one thing and they do it really, really, really well. And they keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And, you know, uh, so there's not one shoe fits all. Do you feel um, at this point that uh, you're in the place you're supposed to be with regards to that? Like the choices you make from, you know, when you go to college and go to Thailand and come back and you know there's, there's a, a long and winding road to use the phrase I mean do you feel quite comfortable with where you've come to at this point well 
That's a lovely question. You know, uh, since the COVID lockdown thing, we just entered month five. We're, uh, um, we've had five months. And I think it was the second week that we were into it, um, Matt and I started an online session. It was really under the radar. I said to my local gang, because uh, I do a once a month teaching session with another instructor in town, another player in town. We just sit down for two hours. We play common session tunes at a really moderate pace, you know, slower pace, but hopefully with really nice rhythm a bunch of times around so that we model. This is a great way to do it. This is one great way to do it. Instead of going around the circle and everybody's got a different level and a different tempo and there's no rhythmic cohesiveness, we thought for two hours, we're going to lead all the tunes. Anybody's welcome to come. Sometimes we'd have like 30 people coming in and it sounded great. And then COVID shut that down, of course. Um, So we thought, we'll do this thing online. Matt and I will play the tunes. We'll play for an hour. We'll play mid-tempo, common session tunes. It's a way to keep us connected. So we did it one week. And like a bunch of people caught wind of it um, because we were doing it in the middle of the afternoon. A bunch of people in Europe and in South America were also tuning in. And so we've run this every week. Um, And again, it was just for the local gang to say, hey, here's an hour of mid-tempo session tunes. It's something that we can offer. This is a very (laughs) simple thing. And, you know, it has been such a wonderful community that has grown out of this. We're doing it weekly and we're continuing it. And, um, you know, people tune in from all over the world. I say thank you to everybody in everybody's language. You know, as people are in the chat, we know that they're, it's a YouTube thing, right? So we can't see everybody, but we can see the the chat. And, yeah. you know, in in the chat from week to week, I thought, wow, there's somebody tuning in from Hungary. There's somebody tuning in from Indonesia. There's, some, you know, so I would say thank you to them in their language. And so now at the end, I say thank you in like, I don't know how many languages, 30, 40 languages. Um, people are tuning in from all over and... Um, I guess in that way, I feel like, well, this is one dumb, small thing uh, that I can do. But um, I guess in that way, uh, I do feel a little bit like maybe I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Um, If that can be one small thing that I can offer. And then this Irish Music Stories podcast, um, if that's a way that I can share the stories of some of my peers, you know, of beautiful music that they've made and um, beautiful initiatives that they've started. If I can share something of that and also I can um, impart some of the the bigness of this cultural tradition to people, that it's really not about the tunes, right? It's about, uh, you know, it is about the tunes. It's about playing them together. And it's about... Um, yeah sort of the fact that these have been played by so many people and with so many people and taught to so many people that any one tune and any one player is just a very small part of it, right? It's so much bigger and older and more sustaining than any one player, no matter how new or how seasoned, right? Um, So I guess it feels um, of use um, to share those things, yeah. So you've mentioned earlier about your parents and your parents idealism i guess so it really i get a sense for you from you that you probably have ups and downs like like everybody but you're still a believer right um is that fair to say 
Are you still a believer? Do you yeah. still have? Yeah, I am. It's been a real test. You know, the last couple of years have been a real test of that. Um, sometimes, I, uh, you know, I'm living in the States and um, not totally understanding uh, where this country is um, putting itself. Um, there's so much goodness and there's so much interest in cultural traditions here in the States because that's what we all grew out of, duh. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, every once in a while, I, I wonder, like, am I just spitting into the wind? Um, but then, you know, you connect with people on a Saturday YouTube session, or, um, you know, you see some kid who, re- who learned this tune on the tin whistle and recorded it and sh- is sharing it, you know, on her Facebook page. I mean, it's it's pretty great. Um, yeah. I do have a sense as well that, um, like, so we're in a third week of a six-week lockdown. Is that right, Darren? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And... Um, Melbourne, the city itself, um, which is a couple hours away from us, is in a more severe lockdown still. And and I've been feeling the last kind of week and a half or two weeks, probably the last three or four weeks, that I've been starting to struggle a bit with some of this stuff. And, you know, listening to you talking and listening to other people who I've spoken to and their their optimism and the sense of uh, optimism isn't quite the word um the commitment to having hope right yeah. in the face of the shit that's going down feels like again like you said it's a it's a dumb small thing to do it on an individual level but in some way if you can keep your heart you can keep that hope in your heart that's kind of your duty that's the that's the kind of john lewis thing of like you have to keep up you have to keep up, even in the face of the worst, right? Well, and, you know, having these tunes that Matt and I can play together in our home, I feel so lucky that for the last five months, I sure, the only place I've been is to the grocery store um, and the post office. Um, <laughs> and I'm here with my son and my husband. And, you know, Matt is a great musician, and I'm so grateful that I can be in here with him playing music with him but also that there are people all over who are in their houses and they're playing these same tunes yeah. uh, that, that's a lot of comfort and I cannot imagine if you didn't have any if you didn't have a creative outlet but also this creative social outlet that's the cool thing about Irish music there are lots of things like this but I mean for Irish music that it's not just something that you know you're working on as your own little project but it is inherently worked on by sharing it and by teaching it and learning it from other people I think without that I think this could be uh, pretty depressing and intolerable yeah I, I have one last thought on that which is that you know from what you're saying it just flashed into my head that if you think about the the most enriching and most heartening experiences that you've had through playing music in the past, right? There, there's a way to look at the moment that we're in now, where um, where you're struggling. That the reason you had those experiences in the past is that 
you can draw on that nourishment now because now is when you need it, right? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, you've stored it away against these harder times. Now the harder times are here. And we have it lucky. I mean, I'm not, you know, um, I'm immensely uh, aware of my own privilege and, you know, we have it easy compared to a lot of people. That said, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, these are hard times. And any any deeply sustaining thing that can get you through. I mean, you know, I run as well. Running and music, I think, are deeply nourishing. Uh, drinking more is definitely <laughs> <laughs> another thing. Um, that's another thing that um, is there, is available. And that's less deeply and long-term nourishing, of course. <laughs> so it's good to balance um, some of the shorter-term um, endeavors with some of the more deeply nervous <laughs> nourishing ones <laughs> you know i was i was only thinking this last night um there's a there's a pub in melbourne where they have a session called um the last jar myself and don would normally have recorded a lot of um episodes in there and they they've had a um, like a weekly they have a zoom call but they put it up on on facebook and it kind of it, it depends on how many people around what kind of night it is and last night there was maybe about eight different people on so eight windows within a zoom call and everyone's kind of having a chat and catching up and it kind of dawned on me and i know it's five months in but it's really oh, so i would classify myself as an introverted extrovert so you would think i'm probably extroverted but i'm actually quite introverted so i often i don't want full full friendship often too and i think uh and full commitment into communicating so with with the catch-ups that you do with friends where you're having um during lockdown it's a it's an intense thing you sit down with a friend and it's it's on a whether it's skype or facebook chat like it's a one-on-one and you need to commit and i think what a lot of musicians and i'm putting myself in this category is that we were missing kind of communication light or like friendship light which is what you get it's like a this music gives us a a middle ground type of um interaction with people where you can be friendly feel like you're with friends but you're not overly communicating so i think where am i i don't actually now forgot where i've gone with this (laughs) yeah with Um, irish music though you can have a huge network of people that you're really fond of and that you really care about that you don't need to remember all of their birthdays and you don't need to be calling every other day and I think you miss. I think one of the things in lockdown is you you miss that you miss that light friendship. Mm. It's it's not an intense friendship, but you do miss just being around people that you care about. As you said, like they're not your best friends, but you you care deeply about them. And you, yeah, I I find I find myself yearning for that. I get I get intense friendship and I get Zoom conversations, but I'm I'm looking forward to kind of smiling at someone across the room and feeling like that's we've done enough for another six months <laughs> yeah i can i can i can work on being more superficial darren you only have to ask dom if i could just tear you away from all your your mirrors and your glitz and your glam for five seconds i'd believe that <laughs> well shannon um um uh would you do us another tune Sure, sure Actually, thing. Actually, before, I, I'd hate to let you go. Just speaking about connecting with people, I think, um, where is the best place to buy your music? Um, I think people can go to Shannon Heaton Music 
com, and you can find what you need there. And that's the best place for the podcast too? Yeah, I think if people go to shannonheatonmusic.com, um, I have an instruction page and there I you know, talk about the session. There I talk about things that Matt and I are doing. There I have links to music so to buy. So yeah, Shannon Heaton Music. What's it like um, working with your husband and playing, <laughs> you know, working on music together? Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, we've definitely had our moments. Um, when we're arranging music, we really like get passionate into it and we have big opinions. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something. But I think the most tension has come for us around the administrative work of being a touring musician booking and promoting and coordinating that with the two of us has always been and calendaring and that's always been such a tough thing to manage Um, and it's tough for any band to manage and so to do that and then also we have to you know pay bills and taxes and um, deal with the schooling and stuff like that for our kid so that's a lot Um, but yeah I it's I feel really lucky you know I uh, I don't feel I feel like that's a power spot for me when I sit with Matt to play. It's very comfortable. And uh, he pushes me as well in a way that is great. I have have one last question. Is your mom still still alive? Yeah, she is. How's she gone? She's great. She lives in um, (laughs) rural Wisconsin is where she has ended up moving which is much to my dismay because it's really far away and it's hard to get to. Um, and right now, so say you're in you're in Boston. I'm in Boston, so right now it's the Zoom rooms. So just hang on there, mom. Just hang in there. To keep being very, very, very well, so that the Zoom room isn't the last place where we meet. Um, yeah. 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 Well, it probably sounds strange coming from complete strangers, but. You know, tell her we were asking for her. <laughs> Aw, thanks. That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so what do you fancy playing? Shannon, thanks so much. This has been yes. just awesome. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. Who knew where this convo was going to go? Um, I'll play just I'll play just one tune. Huh? I'll play um, the Irish Washerwoman. I love this tune. This is Great. one of my favorites, and this is um, the version that I learned from my friend John Williams, who learned it from his teacher Jerdy Coman in Clare. Um, so yeah, here we go. All right. Thanks, guys. Be well. You too. Keep the keep the hope alive. <laughs> Thank you.
beautiful lovely tune thanks for that Shannon I love that tune I'm actually I'm learning that tune on the fiddle at the minute and I, I just I love it I think with the cash jig it is they I think they're the two most quintessential Irish tunes this for me I think the second half so of that nice. I love that I've version I always loved the second half of that tune and the funny thing about it I don't know Shannon if you're aware of this but like that is a tune that when I was growing up you know if there was like a stage Irish character came on TV right in some comedy show that was the tune that would be played right oh yeah and um and so it it just has this trigger for me there was a there was an Irish comedian called Jimmy Cricket uh, do you remember him Darren were you too young? I don't he was the 80s guy you came on he was like a he was he was from the north of Ireland but he he would come on and he would wear a navvy's jacket yep. and a um uh Wellington boots and stuff you know so he was like this kind of caricature Irish character and that was the tune that got played and it's just it's got such a history of um this is the sort of signifier of like Irish working class guy who's a who's not the smartest right is it the it's it is it the cripple creek of yes it's also got such a history of commodification and um really like um a gross display of Irish culture. It was big on the vaudeville scene. It was uh, used in the Irish Spring commercial. Right. In a really, like, hateful way. Um, It has been played in really inelegant (laughs) fashions over the years. That's for sure. I think there's real power in taking a tune like that that has great bones and bringing it back (laughs) to a more dignified uh, setting. On which note, thank you. um, Do you remember two weeks ago, Darren, when we were chatting with Anya Tyrrell and I mentioned that I have this habit of sometimes every time, every time we've got an interview, it doesn't matter if it's for this or for something else. Every time I've got an interview to do, it sort of weighs on me. I was thinking of you tonight exactly that because i have it too and because it was a late start tonight it was horrible uh well (laughs) it was extended and extended anxiety it was because we we didn't get started till 10 at night our time which was eight o'clock um shannon's time and um uh and now i don't feel like i can go to bed because i feel like i've just been to a gig you know that feeling when you come back from a gig recession and you're like "Ah." (laughs) i've opened a zero percent beer ah. to try and placebo myself into feeling relaxed <laughs> um that was such a great conversation and i, I really I, was you probably hear it i've got a big smile on my face and i feel yeah. like you know um we're chatting about those ideas of hope and community and and things and uh, for me very much for me personally um having the opportunity to speak to the people who are in this podcast and shannon in this case is is food for my heart and soul you know it's just like that's that's really where a lot of my hope comes from is just being able to have those conversations you know so thank you shannon and thanks for singing that patty tunney song oh my yes thank you very much as i mentioned in the interview to um keep in contact with uh shannon and to follow the podcast 
the best place to go would be to her website so all of the links will be in the show notes and um, same with the music same with the um moderately paced session for youtube all the links for all of that will be in the show notes as well shannon heaton music.com that's a place to go perfect well outside of that the last thing to do is just to thank our patron saints we had a few uh head over there last week so thank you so much for that your halos are in the post <laughs> if you want to join join the the congregation what was the word you used for it dom uh it's a it's a heavenly host of sorts i think <laughs> that's how i that's how i think of them heavenly host oh, it, was, it was a collective of of saints in the firmament firmament in the firmament the firmament Firmament. They're in the firmament. The firmament is the um, the kind of overarching sky above us, Darren. The the thing that you okay. crash into if you go straight up. That's <laughs> like the ceiling. Yeah, the ceiling. It's basically the ceiling. Yeah, the ceiling. Yeah. Well, like if you would like to join the uh, get up the there. gang of the congregation, get yourselves up there. Yeah, get up there. Go, go. head over to <laughs> Patreon dot com forward slash Balarney programs. Um, as we've said before, like it is the reason that we can continue to make these podcasts every single week. So thank you to everyone that has gone over there to support us. And if you think this is the week, please do. And the sooner you can get over there and start showing the love, the better. If you can't, look, we get it. Uh, please share the podcast around to whoever you think might enjoy it. Make sure you hit subscribe and maybe leave us a five star review on whichever app you're listening to this on right now. I think that's the outro music coming up, Dom. That is the outro music. That is the the roaring barmaid. So, um, with that, thank you to all of you for listening, and thanks to Shannon Heaton, and we'll catch you next week. Catch you then. Hi, my name is Jack, so please become a good subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.